from Titus chapter 3. <clears throat> Excuse me. This morning we talked about my attitude toward myself. Uh, tonight I want us to talk a little bit about God's attitude toward me. Have you ever been concerned with what people think about you? Well, I think some people do not care what others think. But most of us, I believe, to some extent anyway, are concerned in some ways about what others think about us. Has anyone ever told you what they think about you? Maybe that didn't turn out so well. I've been told on occasion what people think about me, and, uh, you know, it could have been better. It could have been a little better. Sometimes we may be sorry to know, right, what some people think about us. There are other times when we appreciate what others believe about us or think about us. It's comforting, isn't it, to know things like that sometimes. Well, I want us to consider that line of thought for just a few moments in the spiritual sense. Let's consider tonight, if we were to ask Satan what he thinks about us from a spiritual perspective, what do you think he would say? Well, I believe, for, for a, not, not for a second do I not believe that he would tell any faithful Christian you're a failure. That's what he believes. That's what he wants us to believe. That we're a failure. What if we were to ask the world around us, society, what they think about us, and we're doing this from the, from the idea of that we've obeyed the gospel and we are Christians. What would the world say to us that they think about us? I think they would say you're a fool for doing what you do. Look at all the things you're missing out on in this life. Look at all the restrictions you've placed upon yourself. And in the reality of things, we haven't placed that many restrictions upon ourselves. We're not missing out on anything that's good in this life. God has provided for us. What if we ask ourselves, do you believe there are people in the world who maybe struggle at times, and if they were to ask themselves, if we sat down and we looked in the mirror and we said, what do you think about you? Maybe some of us would say, I think you're a fake. I think you're a fake. We might look at ourselves and be discouraged thinking we could do better. You know, am I a fake at times? But does it really matter what Satan or what society thinks about us? I don't think it matters at all. Does it matter what I think about myself? Sure it does. We talked about that this morning, didn't we? We better think the proper way about ourselves. But what really matters is, what does God think about me? What is God's attitude toward me? Is it possible to know what God's attitude is toward each of us? Well, I think it's possible. I think that in Paul's letter to Titus, that is revealed for us exactly what God thinks about us. Paul wrote this. Notice Titus chapter 3. Let's begin with verse 1. Paul wrote saying, Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That being justified by His grace, 
we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying. In these things I will that thou affirm constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. That's what God thinks of us. That's God's attitude toward us, I believe, in a nutshell. In his letter earlier in chapter 2, Paul talked about how we ought to behave ourselves in the church, how Christians ought to behave, that we ought to remember who we are in Jesus, that we ought to understand what God has done for us through Him and what God expects from us as believers in Him. We go into chapter 3 and the transition is subtle. It's still how we ought to behave. But in these verses, God, uh, Paul has described God's attitude toward me and what I ought to or how I ought to behave in society, how I ought to react and, and how I ought to live around those people who are in the world and around my fellow Christians, right? I think he gives us some encouragement within this instruction. He instructs us on what to do, but then he encourages us on how to do that. I think sometimes we may become discouraged wondering what God thinks of me. What does God see in me? How does God see me? Of course, I want us to understand this is God's attitude toward the saved. God's attitude toward the Christian. He has an attitude toward all people. But tonight specifically, we want to talk about God's attitude toward the saved. So exactly what is God's attitude toward the saved? Well, our first point tonight is God's attitude is one that I am precious. The Christian is precious to God. Satan says God doesn't care at all. But God says something very different. In fact, we learn the extent of how precious we are to God and how we learn it is by comparing how we were to what we are now. We learn how precious we are when we compare what we are now to what we used to be. And that's that list that Paul talked about. Paul said we were foolish, ignorant of what God wanted and expected. Now that doesn't mean that we're ignorant because we just didn't know. We're ignorant because we didn't care to know, right? That's what that word indicates, this foolish. Sometimes we are ignorant of things and it's not our fault. We haven't been taught or we haven't done whatever is necessary through no fault of our own. But when it comes to understanding God and having knowledge of God, if one is ignorant, they are ignorant because they have not searched out God. Paul said we were foolish, ignorant of what God expects and what God wants. He said we were disobedient. That's rebellious toward all authority based in God. He said deceived. That means continually being led away. Now that word from which we get our English translation means to be guided off the path. We were deceived. Of course, who is the great deceiver? That's Satan, of course. Serving diverse lusts and pleasures, meaning that we were slaves to our fleshly appetites and our desires. We weren't willing, we didn't have the fortitude to deny those things, to place those restrictions Upon ourselves. He says, living in malice, that's given wholly over to a lifestyle of evil. Any lifestyle 
that is not in accordance with God's lifestyle is a lifestyle of evil. Now, are there varying degrees of that? Of course there are. But it's still a lifestyle of evil. Envious, never satisfied, always wanting more, even to the harm and hurt of other people. Never being satisfied, hateful, and hating one another. Is that not the natural fruit of all those things we just discussed? Of course it is. That's the natural result. Living the kind of life which makes one mean-spirited and hard to get along with. Hurting one another. Walking without love for our fellow men. That is what all Christians were in varying degrees before they obeyed the gospel. Now those are terrible conditions under which to live, aren't they? Have you ever known someone? Let's just look at a few of them. Have you ever known someone who was hateful, hard to get along with, never satisfied with anything? Do you believe for a second they were happy? No, they didn't even like themselves, let alone anyone else. Those are terrible and horrible conditions under which to live, and God took all that away. God took that away when He gave us the greatest gift in the history of mankind. But because of the extent of God's love, we overcame. Paul said, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1 He who he has made alive, quickened. He made us a living individual again because we were dead in sin. But we obeyed the gospel. How do we know God looks at us as precious? How how can we be sure that we understand the extent of His love for us in viewing us as precious? Well, let's look at some of the evidences that Paul gave us. Notice verse 4. That begins with, after that. Well, after what? Well, that whole list of what we once were. After that, he says. In other words, he might say, in spite of what we were. And then he gives the evidence for the extent of His great love for us. Now, how do you do that? We find that answer in verse 6 of our passage. Through Jesus Christ our Savior. That's the evidence. We don't need any more evidence other than that, do we? Because we could talk about that one piece of evidence until the end of time. And we could never fully appreciate exactly what God did for us. He gave the evidence of His love by sending His only begotten Son into a hateful world among hateful people so that He might bring life to those dead in sin. God gave the evidence, or excuse me, John gave the evidence of God's great love for us. Notice 1 John 4. 1 John 4 beginning with verse 9. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now we have to understand the extent of that love. We have to understand the evidence of that love. God loved us before we ever loved Him. Does that translate somehow in in our lives? Is there ever an instant in our lives where we love someone before they have even the capability of loving us? What about children? What about newborn babes, right? Who doesn't love a precious gift from God like a baby? 
we love that child, don't we? We want to hold that child and, and, and kiss the child and love on the child and do everything we can. We want to be with that child. What does that child understand about us? Really nothing. Not in the beginning, right? The child understands it's hungry and it'll cry. It'll understand it's uncomfortable in some way, so we'll check the diaper just to make sure that, that everything's okay. But that's about the extent of what they understand. But we love that child way before they ever had the capacity to love us back. See, that's the way God loves us. Before we ever loved Him, He loved us. He created us. Why? Because He wanted children. He wanted a relationship with His creation. So He created us. He created us so we could love Him and honor Him and worship Him and see Him for who He is. But He loved us first. That's evidence alone of His great love for us that He would even love us. If we ever need evidence of God's love for us, look no further than the cross on which Christ died. The cross says, I love you. And Paul tells us why, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He loved us so much that He gave that child. Now let's go back to our previous illustration. We love that newborn child with which God has blessed us. Now for who in this world would we give that child so that individual might have life? No one, right? That's the answer. No one. I have four babies. I wouldn't give any of them for anyone, let alone a hateful world. But God did that very thing. That's His demonstration. That's the evidence that we are precious in His sight. That's His attitude toward us. He extended mercy to us, right? Verse 5. When it was not deserved. We don't deserve mercy from God, but in His great love and His feeling of, uh, that we're precious, He extended that mercy. That's evidence. Paul explained further what he stated here. In this passage, he says that God saved us from the penalty of sin. He washed us from the stain of sin. He allowed us to continue in that by maintaining us because we were renewed and regenerated by the Holy Spirit. So how exactly did that happen? Well, in his letter to the Romans, he made a statement, Romans 6, beginning with verse 3. Now the question was, or the misunderstanding was prior to that, that the Romans said, we understand we receive grace because of our sin. Well, we want more grace, therefore we'll sin more. Paul said, God forbid that you would sin more. Don't you know those of us who have died to sin? will sin no more. And that's when we pick up in verse 3. He says, Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we're buried with Him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. The evidence for the extent of God's love for us is overwhelming. God's attitude toward me, God's attitude toward us is we're precious but he also has the attitude that we're perfect. That's our second point. We're perfect. Paul is not indicating sinless perfection. 
verse 7 of our text says that we are justified. We are justified. The perfect of which God sees us as is completeness. We're complete in Him. To be justified means to be rendered righteous in the sight of God. That He sees us as justified, as righteous, as being in fellowship with Him as opposed to not being in fellowship with Him, being unrighteous, being unjustified, not living as He would have us to live. Justified is the opposite of all of those things. We are in right standing before God. And again, this perfect means to be complete. We're complete when we're added to the Lord's church. We're complete when we obey the gospel. Those two things are are synonymous. Can't be added to the Lord's church unless we obey the gospel. We are complete when we allow God's plan of salvation to save us, 1 Peter 3, 21. The like figure wherein to baptism doth also now save us, not to put any away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a clear conscience toward God. And he tells us at the end of that verse that it is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know that to be the case because of the letter John wrote. Let's go back to his letter, 1 John, but let's notice verse 8 of chapter 1. We know it can't be sinless perfection, but it can be justification. He said, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's how we maintain our justification. We maintain our righteousness, our right standing, our fellowship with God by acknowledging the sin when it happens Confessing it, repenting, and asking God to forgive us. That's what justification is all about. Peter warned that we were to make our calling and election sure. 2 Peter 1 verse 10. So why do we need to do that? Why would Peter admonish his readers? Make sure that your calling and election is steadfast, is remain, or that it remains. Because there's always the possibility of losing that election. We've always been called. God's never going to stop calling us. Our key part is the election, right? Choosing to be faithful, choosing to remain justified in the sight of God. And God's given us the tools by which we accomplish that, hasn't He? Peter continues to talk about it, Second Peter 1 verse 3. He said, According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him, that hath called us to glory and virtue. And Paul said that very knowledge, that same knowledge, we're talking about the gospel, Romans 1, 16, that same knowledge would make the man of God perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work, 2 Timothy 3, 17. And again, the word perfect there, there it is, meaning complete. God sees us as precious, He sees us as perfect because we are justified, and that justification brings something with it. It brings joy. The joy of righteousness, the joy of being in right standing with God. You know what Satan wants us to believe in conjunction with the rest of the world? You're wasting your time. Why do you bother? If God does exist, He doesn't care about you. The lifestyles we have chosen to live is a waste of time. The effort we put into congregating with the Lord's people is a waste of time. The idea of studying from 
from a book as old as the Bible, surely it's a waste of time. Praying to someone you can't even see? They put people in mental hospitals when they talk to someone others can't see, right? That's the whole idea that the world wants us to believe. We're wasting our time. But God tells us something different. Paul spoke of eternal joy, verse 7 of our passage, and eternal life, it comes only through obedience. What's the main goal of any Christian? What's the main goal in this life? To get to the next one. Now, we're going to get to the next one, whether we want to or not, but we want to find ourselves in the right place when we get to the next life, right? That's when we expect to receive the true joy of our labors. That's when we expect to reap the harvest. That's when we expect to receive the inheritance. It is after death that that the true inheritance is granted, right? And the person who grants the inheritance, he has already died, and he came out of the grave, and he rules over his kingdom at this very moment, so we know we'll receive it. The true joy of God comes in the next life, but the faithful Christian is a partaker of the inheritance of God in this life. That doesn't mean bad things will not happen to us. In His Sermon on the Mount, we read about the Beatitudes. Jesus talked about the Beatitudes, and He talked about the meek inheriting the earth. Followers of Christ are going to be blessed in in ways in this life, but that's not the main way in which we're going to be blessed. Paul talked about us being joint heirs with Christ, Romans 8, 15 through 17. But the main way in which we're going to realize our blessings is in the next one. That's when the true joy comes. Being a joint heir in this life and being blessed for certain things in this life may not necessarily bring with it joy, according to the world, right? We may suffer in some way, and that's because we're joint heirs with Christ. What did did Christ inherit when He came to this earth? What was He given? Death, punishment, torture, treated terribly. We may endure some of those very things. We may not like that, but but Paul said for us to, to be happy when we suffer as faithful Christians. Don't be happy when you suffer as a thief or a murderer. You've got that coming, right? But when we can suffer for God, that's joy, but that's not a joy like we're going to enjoy when we get into eternity with God and being in heaven with Him. It is an honor to suffer for God. In that, in that sense, is joyful. But when Job suffered at the hand of Satan, he did not enjoy the predicament in which he was, but he was glad to suffer as a child of God. Living a life like that makes God's attitude toward us as one that we are precious in His sight. One that says that we are perfect, we are complete, because we can be justified and we can have the joy of knowing that. But God's attitude toward us is also, and this is our last point, we are profitable. God's attitude toward us is we are profitable. And God sees that profit in our daily walk of life. We notice that in verse number 8. Satan says God can't use you. God says I need you. I need you. I need you to carry out my plan. God saved us for a purpose, didn't He? Why did God save us? Did God save us simply so we could avoid hell? Well, that's a blessing of God saving us. 
But God saved us so we could help other people learn how to avoid hell. And how do we go about doing that? Living a life of righteousness will impact the world. It'll have an impact on the world. Peter said this, 1 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2. He said, Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Well, what's he talking about? He's talking about a lifestyle. He's talking about living righteous and being justified and and, in right standing in the sight of God. And in this particular context, the unbelieving husband, the husband who has not obeyed the gospel, who is not a Christian, sees that lifestyle. And because of that, his life is impacted and he obeys the gospel because of the chaste or the the righteous living of his wife, coupled with fear. And where did he learn that? From the Word of God. So it's coupled with the Word of God and the example of of his wife. We live in this world, we walk in this life, and we are examples whether we understand that or not. The example of a faithful life is far more powerful than one who simply claims to be a Christian. Have you ever been in the world, maybe perhaps you've gone out to eat, someone walks over to the table and and they commend you for bowing your head in prayer prior to eating? Have you ever had that happen to you? Has anyone ever commented on, uh, maybe you're on a a family outing and someone comes over and they they commend you for the behavior of your children or of just simply the, the interaction that you're having as a family and they can tell that's different from the world? Have you ever had that happen? See, that's a lifestyle that's impacting the world through not even saying anything. It's simply by the way we walk. That's our daily walk in this life, and that makes us profitable to God, and that's His attitude toward us. But we're also profitable in our works. It can't simply be by example alone, right? We have to have that great example. We, but we have to purpose in our hearts to live for God. We see the young man Daniel doing that. Daniel 1 verses 1 through 8. He purposed in his heart not to defile himself. Excuse me, he wasn't going to eat at the king's table and eat those foods that that were uh, not allowed for him to partake of under the law of God at that time. So he purposed, he determined something in his mind. I'm not going to sin, I'm not going to live in such a way that I will defile myself. So he told his captors, the person in charge of the eunuchs, said, allow me and, and, and his friends to eat a certain diet that was within the laws of God and give us a certain period of time and then come back and see how we're faring. See, the idea was that these were, <clears throat> these were learned men. These were smart people that the king had, had brought up out of Israel and he took the brightest of the bright. And he brought them into his court and he used them as wise men. And so he wanted to feed them and give them the best of everything in his mind. Well, the best of everything according to him wasn't the best of everything according to God. And so Daniel said, let us eat these foods and then come back in a period of time and see if if we're healthy or not. Well, they were healthier than the other people. God blessed them, but he purposed. He went out of his way. You know, very simply, Daniel could have said, well, there's nothing I can do about it. Here I am. I'm in captivity. I've got to eat what they give me. 
I think we think that way in this life a lot of the time. There's nothing I can do about it. Well, there is something we can do about it. We can purpose in our hearts not to defile ourselves. God expects us that to understand that He didn't save us just to keep us out of hell. He saved us to help other people avoid hell. He expects us to work. He expects us to be profitable for Him while we live in this world. That's the whole point of the parable of the talents and the pounds, right? He's gone away, and while we're here, we're to be good stewards over that which He's blessed us, and we are to be profitable as we work. Paul said this, 1 Corinthians 5, or Ephesians 2, verse 10. He said, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, He said, Always be abounding in the work of the Lord, for you know that work is not performed in vain. God expects us to work. Now think of it this way. If God expected people like a murderer like Moses, a blasphemer like Saul of Tarsus, an adulterer like David, a rebel by the name of Jonah, or a loudmouth like Peter to be profitable, I believe He expects each of us to be profitable as well. He used them, and He can use us. What is God's attitude toward me? God knows and believes the Christian is precious, the Christian is perfect, and the Christian is profitable. That's God's attitude toward the faithful. Now, God has an attitude toward all people. God has an attitude toward the lost. and We have to understand what that is, too. First of all, He loves all people. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish. They might. He didn't say could not. They should not perish but have everlasting life. And He wants each person to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and to be saved, 1 Timothy 2, 4. But now here's the thing. He, Paul said, that today is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. He didn't say tomorrow. We don't know if it'll come. Yesterday is gone, but we have right now. We have today. And what God wants, His attitude toward everybody, obey the gospel. If you've obeyed the gospel and you've fallen away, go back and gain your justification through repentance, confession, and prayer. That's God's attitude toward the lost. So he has an attitude toward everybody. Again, the Christian, we're precious. We're perfect. We're profitable. The lost can't be any of those. Not because God doesn't love the lost, because they're not capable. They're not in a relationship where they can be viewed as precious. The lost is not perfect, not complete, because they're outside of Christ, and that's where all spiritual blessings are. Uh, Ephesians 1 verse 3. And they can never be profitable because they're not in God's family. If you have need to answer this Lord's invitation, if you've never obeyed the gospel, do that. Have God's attitude toward you to reflect these things we talked about tonight. If you have obeyed the gospel and you've become unfaithful, come back to God tonight. His attitude toward you will never change as far as His love. But He wants us to all come back if we've gone away. If you need to answer this invitation, do that now as we stand and as we sing.